don't waste other people's time. Yes. That may be the most important one, really. In time is money. Time is money. And people, it may not even be conscious, but everybody values their own time. And if you are seen as someone who wastes time in meetings or wastes other people's time with unnecessary work, wastes your employees' time with unnecessary work, or focuses on the wrong things, it's important to focus on the right things, then you're not going to be an effective leader. Don't waste your people's time. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is a global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy, oil, and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities both upstream and downstream without compromising safety by delivering strategies that optimize operations, reduce costs, and risks. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to ask everyone to please support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review in iTunes. I love hearing your feedback and helps other people find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 10-second survey, and we will get this shipped out to you. All right, let's introduce this week's guest. I'm sitting here today with David Blackman, principal of DB Energy Advisors, host of the Energy Transition Podcast, host of the Energy Question, writer, senior contributor at Forbes, and minor of absurdities. David, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am good. I am so good. And I'm pretty excited to have you on today because I I follow you on LinkedIn. You are a hoot. (laughs) I have a lot of material to work with. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. So, David, how did you get started in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, you know, it was an interesting process. I grew up in South Texas. Family had a little ranch in Goliad County, Texas, and there was always oil and gas activity out on the ranch. I was around a lot when I was a kid. Worked in the oil patch a couple of summers while I was in college on a pipeline construction crew. It was my father's strategy for making sure I finished college. It was very effective. I knew I couldn't do that for a living for the rest of my life. So <laughs> right? that worked out very well. And then when I got my accounting degree, of all things, I had job offers from several places. But the main two I considered were either going to work for the Texas State Comptroller to collect taxes from the oil and gas industry or go to work for Coastal States Corporation uh, run by legendary oil man Oscar Wyatt. My father advised me it's always better to be in the private sector, so I took that job in Houston and had never sat at a traffic light for more than 10 minutes in my life (laughs) before then, and and that was quite an eye-opening experience in 1980 in Houston when half the state of Michigan had moved down to Texas to try to get a job in the oil industry because the auto industry was depressed, right? So, yeah, you know, it was a tough time to be in Houston and, you know, not have any support group around me. So that's how I got in there. I didn't stay in accounting very long. I didn't really like accounting, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, but who does? Who does, <laughs> yeah, really? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was a little boring for me and I don't have enough attention to detail, frankly, to be a good accountant. So instead, I migrated over into regulatory affairs and then government affairs and spent the last 25 years of my career working in government affairs at the state and federal level. Oh, so we have something in common. I'm regulatory compliance, babe. Yeah. 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 I did that for quite a while and focused mainly on regulatory audits, but also on land access and royalty valuation issues with the Department of Interior because I was with... Burlington Resources at that time, and we were the biggest producer of natural gas in the United States on federal lands. 
And so we had an awful lot of interactions with the, the Department of Interior on royalty payments and on, you know, this was in the 1990s. And so all the land access issues were really heating up with endangered species and, mm. you know, all of these permitting delays that everybody seems to be suddenly worried about now, all of which stem from all these federal environmental statutes. Every delay you have almost is related to one of the environmental statutes. And so I had a lot of exposure to that work and it really serves me well writing about all this stuff these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was the hardest part about getting into the regulatory stuff? Because I mean, you went from accounting, so you already had like processes and all that. But what was the hardest part about that? Because, you know, in my experience, I've obviously, you know, waiting on permits, but like that transition time. Yeah. So for me, it really wasn't difficult because what I'd been specializing in in accounting was payment of taxes and royalties to the various states and to the feds. So I had already been doing that side of it. When the audits really began to heat up at Burlington in the late 80s, early 90s, <laughs> I remember we were in a departmental meeting and our manager said, well, I have this really lousy job. If somebody wants to volunteer for it, managing this audit from the state of New Mexico, they're coming in, need somebody to field their questions and respond to them, coordinate all that. And I thought, you know what? Nobody else is going to volunteer for this. So I'm going to volunteer for it just because I liked our manager and he was a good guy. And so I decided to do that. And what I realized is that actually was a terrific way to move up and move around in a corporate organization is to volunteer for the jobs nobody else wants to do, right? Yeah. They may be tedious and they may be difficult and they might be disagreeable in a lot of respects, but it's something that management notices. And so from that point forward in my career, I really did a lot of that, volunteered for, you know, a lot of unpleasant tasks. <laughs> within Burlington and then at other companies I worked for later. So that was just, you know, I was a very naive person when I came out of college. I had grown up in a small town. I was in a lower middle class family. My daddy was a postal worker his whole career. So we didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of relationships outside the family. And I didn't have, we didn't travel, so I didn't have exposure to things outside of Texas. And so when I came out of college, while I had a pretty good education, I was very naive and didn't understand much about how life in the corporate world actually works. So it took me about 10 years to start figuring all that out. And I was by then well behind many of my peers, but, you know, I kind of caught up later on in my career. Yeah, no, that happens. I mean, I come from a small town too. And so until I moved to Texas, did I have, <laughs> was I aware of so many things? <laughs> <laughs> and then what I was like, did you grow up in? You, you oh, I'm from Louisiana. From Louisiana. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I love Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. I'm from a small town called Crowley, right? Okay. Before you get to Lafayette. Yeah. 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 Rice capital of the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in Louisiana in my career. Yeah. Worked over there quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we all go through that really naive stage in our lives where it's really awkward. We're trying to figure out the world, but without anybody holding our hand. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of had to figure it all out on my own. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. It all worked out and I'm grateful for the experience. Yeah. What's the hardest thing you learned during that time? Oh, gosh. The hardest thing I learned? Gosh, I don't really know how to answer that question. I guess one of the hardest things I learned was, you know, you're not going to have a lot of help when you're doing jobs like that because no one else wants to touch it. That's fair. And one of the hardest things about particularly working the audit piece of it was paying really close attention to what I was getting from other departments internally in the company as far as documentation for the way we were valuing severance taxes and royalties and making sure that was all in compliance with the regulations at hand, which I pretty well understood the regulations, but it was kind of difficult. It was a very complex situation where natural gas valuation was concerned at that time. And so it was really difficult for me to early on figure out whether I was getting the documentation I needed, really needed to respond to those auditors. And there were a couple of instances where you know, I thought I had everything handed it over to them and then they come back with, 
you know, not just with another request, but with a subpoena or an order for additional documents that I didn't realize, yeah. you know, they needed. And so that was tough. But again, it was a really good experience for later on working legislative issues and regulatory issues in terms of regulations that were under development because just gave me a better understanding of how all that worked internally at the company. Yeah. Okay. So you did internal audits. You didn't do like acquisitional stuff. This was audits that regulatory agencies, the state, really it started with state agencies on severance taxes in New Mexico, Texas, and Wyoming. Then it later on developed into federal audits from federal auditors on how we valued our royalty payments to the federal government. Ah, so it was also specific to accounting. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All of it was very good. Yeah. 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 No, I had to do some of that too, but mine was more on the operational side. So, yeah. Getting, yeah. you know, just drilling permits and, you know, right. recording. Yeah. So, I did a little yeah. of that, but not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all fun to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the most fun things was walking a permit through at the Railroad Commission, a drilling permit. You know, I did that for a little while when I was with an independent producer. And, you know, you'd get up early in the morning, you'd drive over to Austin, you walk in at nine o'clock in the morning with your documentation. And by noon, most of the time, I was able to walk out of there with the permit in hand and drive back. Now you're showing your age. Yeah. (laughs) And even now, though, I will tell you that even now in Texas, you can get those permits in less than a week, and you know. It's, well, it's a it also story helps in other states. Yeah, well, it also helps when you know people. Right, I know a exactly. lot of those guys, yeah. and yeah. I could probably get it knocked out in a couple of days if I needed to. But I'm a little rusty, Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> Louisiana, I could probably get an emergency one. Right. Yeah. If you, like if in you a can day. Make that case. Yeah. Absolutely. Louisiana is a great state. Gets a bad rap. The government and how it works. Oh, no, they do wonderful over there. They do really great work in those agencies. And largely the bad rap comes from people not really understanding how the process works. I just blame Bobby Jindal. There you go. Absolutely. (laughs) He left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. (laughs) He did. There's a little (laughs) arrogance going on with Governor Jindal. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, no offense to him, but like, come on. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words, bro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about what you do now. You're a writer. You have all these podcasts. I mean, you post daily on LinkedIn, which I love. Yeah. So I'm, of course, semi-retired now. I retired out of the oil and gas industry proper in 2016, in August of 2016, so almost seven years ago now. Oh, just in time for the downturn. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But I had worked out a couple of deals with clients to do some consulting. And the company I was with at the time, Lynn Energy, was going through bankruptcy at that time, and they were offering early retirements. And so I thought, you know, we were in Houston then. We had grandchildren in Mansfield, where I live now. And it had become pretty difficult to drive back to Houston after spending a weekend with them, you know, and they were very young then. So we decided that was a good time for me to take that retirement and do something else. And so we came up to Mansfield. I was doing some consulting. I still do some consulting, but not a lot. But mainly what I do is write and talk about energy. And I had stumbled into the deal contributing with Forbes, gosh, way back in 2011 now. That's a funny story. I was the idiot again, volunteering to do things nobody else wanted to do. One of our trade <laughs> associations was looking for somebody willing to to be the one oil and gas guy on a five-person panel discussion at the South by Southwest Eco Conference in Austin. The other panelists on that panel were from the Sierra Club, the NRDC, EDF. Ooh, fun. And a wonderful nun named Sister Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth, who had become an activist against the development of the Eagle Ford Shell. She was from South Texas and just a delightful lady, really wonderful person, and I really enjoyed meeting her. But the panel discussion was... (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we're on the University of Texas campus. Half the audience was students who had been indoctrinated to hate the oil and gas industry. And so we had an hour-long discussion about the Eagle Ford Shale, and the moderator happened to be a fellow named Chris Elman, who is and still is, was then and still is, the 
chief editor at the Forbes desk in Houston. So after it was over, he thought I'd done a pretty good job. And he said, you ought to become a contributor for us. And I said, okay, cool, let's go, you know. And so the next week I wrote my first story for him. You know, just one of those things that you kind of stumble into. And after that, shortly, I started writing for World World Oil Magazine. And now I also (laughs) write for the Petroleum Economist. And I contribute at the Daily Caller as well. So I've got a lot of different writing gigs going on these days, but I have a lot to write about. So yeah, no, you have plenty to write about. And it sounds like you're really busy in your retirement. (laughs) I told my wife when we did this, my goal was to work about 20 hours a week, you know, and make enough money to supplement our income. We've saved pretty well over the years. So it's not like we're hurting for money, but you know, it's always nice to supplement your income. And now I work probably 30 hours a week. So it's still not quite full-time and I'm trying hard not to let it become full-time. Yeah. And I get that, but I'm sure your wife's like, oh good. He's still doing something and that's driving me crazy. Right. Exactly. Cause I mean, that, that, that always, yeah. yeah, Cause that always happens when the oil filled people. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to have something to do to keep your your body and your mind occupied. And right. All this talking and writing about energy really keeps my mind occupied, which is good. Yeah. 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 No, like my dad's still working and he's like, I will sleep when I die. There's, <laughs> Yeah. I don't think I'll ever probably be fully retired. I just can't yeah. see that. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, to each their own. Right. To each yeah. their own. I'm so a golfer, you... you know, so I don't, I oh, don't yeah, have a golf either. course to go to every day. So, you know, some people just do that and that's great. I'm glad it works. And I'm not good at it either. Oh, I was terrible at it. Yeah. <laughs> So I gave it up about 10, 12 years ago. <laughs> oh, I gave it up immediately. I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> well, I had been pretty good when I was younger. Not pretty good. But I was decent when I was younger. Got down to about 11 handicap at one point, you know, so I, I wouldn't embarrass myself too badly. But then, you know, things got so busy with my career and my family. You don't have time to get out to the course and practice. Right. And, and then it gets to be a very, very frustrating game at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have the patience for that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either. It's bad for my heart. The stress was really bad for my heart. So I decided it was a good thing to give up. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I got to keep that heart healthy. (laughs) (laughs) So how'd you get into the podcasts? You know, I resisted podcasting for quite some time, but then after I moved up here to Mansfield in 2016, I latched on to an opportunity to become an editor at Shale Magazine, which is a magazine out of San Antonio that was initially established in 2014, I think it was, to cover the development of the Eagle Ford Shale. We expanded that portfolio to cover all of the shale business in the United States. I did that until early last year. But during the course of that, we developed a radio program that aired across the state of Texas on six or seven different stations at any given time. And I really enjoyed, you know, co-hosting that radio show. It, of course, is very similar to podcasting. And when I decided to stop doing that last year, again, I just stumbled into meeting a couple of people who are involved in that, a fellow named Stu Turley, who has a company called Sandstone Group that He has a group of podcasts his company manages, and he invited me to start doing one. So I decided, yeah, that's a great idea. I'd like to do it. And we started the Energy Question last August, and I've done my 47th episode this last week. Congratulations. Yeah, and it's been great. You know, it's a little 30-minute thing. We interview one person in each show. I interview one person in each show. It's typically a leader in the energy space. Kind of like Are you trying leader. to copy me? Well, not really, because <laughs> because we talk about instead of leadership issues, you know, I'm focused yeah. on, you know, what's happening in the energy transition. And or this past week, actually, it was just a couple of days ago, I interviewed the CEO of a geothermal company. We talked to uh, her name, Cindy Taff. She is just a terrific leader. She had been at Shell, and she has a geothermal project going on here in Texas. And her company is kind of on the cutting edge of geothermal development in Texas. I learned so much from talking to these folks, and I learned a lot about the geothermal business I didn't know. So, you know, it was 
really rewarding thing to do this podcast. I've interviewed Daniel Jurgen a couple of times. Oh, that's cool. You know, and lots of CEOs and hoping to get Dan back on soon. Actually, I'm kind of due. You know, it's just been great. And I think I've interviewed 17 CEOs now as part of all that. So it's, 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 it's a fun it's experience really, yeah. and getting to learn and absorb all this knowledge that all these leaders have. It's such a cool experience. It really is. It really is because they all know so much more than I do <laughs> about right. these subjects. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like I want to take notes, you know, while they're talking. But uh, but I end up with a transcript recorded anyway, so it's just as good. Right. And, yeah, you know, the great, yeah. the other benefit of that is I've turned quite a few of those interviews into Forbes stories, you know, because, you know, it's on a current topic and it's timely and I'm interviewing, you know, I'm having quotes from someone a lot smarter than me. So readers are interested. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny because you just said you had someone for geothermal on. I just had someone from geothermal on that I'm releasing next month. Yeah, there's some stuff going on in Colorado, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and a lot of stuff in Texas too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. No, I'm yeah, confused. but I didn't. Aren't I didn't understand. Denver? Aren't you in Denver? Am no, I I'm confused? here in Houston. You're in Houston. I'm in Houston. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For some reason, I thought <laughs> you were okay. in Denver. Anyway. No, I would love to be right now with this heat. Yeah. No, I would no, love to no. be. Be good to have a break. Supposed to get up to 103 this week. Yeah. Yeah. Here too. So. But at the end of the month, I will be in Calgary. We're there you doing go. an industry mixer there in Calgary. Oh, so fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. Love yeah. Calgary. What a beautiful place. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love it too. I love it too. And I'm like, anytime I can go, absolutely. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> yeah. Just the scenery, everything completely gorgeous. So. Calgary actually was one of the first places I ever went outside of the state of Texas. I had gotten a, had taken a job with a little independent producer. I thought was a little independent producer back in my hometown <laughs> of Beeville. And it turned out they had operations in six different countries. And one was Canada. And there was an audit going on up there that I had never been out of the state of Texas. I was 24 years old. Other than to go across the border on shopping trips to Brownsville or Laredo. And we got on Mr. Hughes's private plane, fellow named Dan Hughes, and flew up to Calgary on a private plane. And that was my first trip out of the state of Texas. That's what a sheltered life I had led. I've been through Beeville. Yeah, Beeville's a cool place. It was a great place to grow up. When I was growing up, there's a big naval air station there called Chase Field that every pilot as part of their training for the U.S. Navy, had to spend time at Chase Field. So there are people all over the world who <laughs> have a pretty intimate knowledge of Beeville, Texas, population 13,000. <laughs> it's really kind of amazing. I meet somebody everywhere I go who used to live in Beeville. It's amazing. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well, David, let's go ahead and get into leadership, especially since you've also interviewed all these leaders, <laughs> as I've also done. I hope you learned something from them. I hope so. What is leadership to you? You know what? Leadership to me is the ability to work with people and guide people in a specific direction to achieve a desired goal. It's all about, you know, I talk a lot about it. It's all about relationships and your ability to lead people depends really almost entirely on the nature of your relationship with them. And if you're able to form good, strong relations with people you're working with, or people who think they're working for you, but are really working with you. That's the key. They need to be working with you and not just for you. And if you're, if you're able to do that, you're going to be an effective leader. I worked with very closely with four or five CEOs in my career. And every one of them was a person who, number one, knew how to identify the right people to work on projects with him. They were all men, unfortunately, and I never worked with a woman CEO, I'm sad to say, but I was in the oil business. so That's just how it was. Yeah. That's how it was then. But every one of them was someone who understood this, that their ability to lead depended entirely on their ability to work with their employees and not over them. Like a dictatorship. Right. I worked for a dictator once. I worked for a CEO named Oscar Wyatt at Coastal States about my first job out of college. And he was a hoot. But, you know, I mean, his company was fine. But when I went to work for him, he had just been forced 
by a federal court to divest a company called Lavaca Gathering Company, which ended up becoming Valero. That's mm, yep. where Valero came from. And Oscar was a crusty old guy. And I've got <laughs> a funny story about Oscar Wyatt, actually, if you don't mind me telling. Oh, yeah. No, um, please do tell. Again, I was right out of college, 22 years old, when I went to work for Coastal. And I'd been there about two weeks. I was the junior accountant in the revenue accounting section. And my supervisor walks into my tiny little cubicle one day and he looks at me and he says, what did you do? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, I just had a call from Oscar Wyatt's secretary. And she says he wants to see you in his office now. Ooh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. What? Why would he want to? Why would Oscar Wyatt want to see me? And he says, I don't know, but you need to go on up there now. And so I, all the way up, they were just four floors up. So I took the stairs. I'm thinking I'm going to get fired. I'm two weeks into my first job out of college. I'm going to get fired <laughs> by the CEO. And I don't even know why. And my mother's going to be ashamed of me. And I just don't know how to tell my father this. And now am I going to move back to Beeville and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so get up there and I tell the secretary who I am. She says, okay, well, sit down. He'll be with you in a minute. And about, you know, I'm sitting there 10 minutes and she's finally oh my says, gosh. okay, he's ready for you. Go on in. So I go into this office, which is, you know, I don't know, 50 by 60 feet, you know, just an enormous office with all sorts of stuff in it. And he's on the phone and I walk in and I'm just standing there and he looks at me. He just points at a chair in front of his desk. And I sit there for another 10 minutes while he finishes that call. <laughs> he hangs up and he looks at me and he says, your name's David Blackman? I say, yes, sir. He says, do you have an uncle named Thad Irby? And I say, yeah, that's my mother's brother. He's my uncle. And he says, you know, I never did like that guy. <laughs> what? <laughs> he says, How's he doing? And I said, well, he's doing fine. He said, and how did you get a job at my company? And I said, well, I sent in an application and, <laughs> you know, they called me for an interview and I went and interviewed and they hired me. And he says, well, I never did like your uncle. Oh, that's so and random. I haven't seen him in 40 years, but I want you to know that you're safe with me and you're welcome here. And I'm like, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And we sat there and talked for half an hour about my uncle. It turned out they'd had a conflict with one another. They'd gone to college together, first of all, and oh. didn't like each other when they were in college. And then later on, my uncle was with a company called Mid-States all back in the 1950s and gotten into a dispute with Coastal States or with Lavaca Gathering Company, actually. Mr. White had hard feelings, had retained those hard feelings for 25 years until I showed up <laughs> as an accountant for his company. So anyway, just one of those deals, you know. Talk about holding a grudge, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty extraordinary. But, you know, I later found out, of course, you know, he was pretty good at holding grudges. And I understand he's still alive, living out in Utah somewhere. So I hope he's doing well. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the grudge is so hard. He's looking for lineage and yeah. stuff. <laughs> anyway. I will find your family. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you get a job at my company? I applied like normal people do. <laughs> That's hysterical. Wow. <laughs> okay, so like on a different note, do you have an example? of a difficult experience you've had in leadership. I mean, obviously this industry is slitic. So like, you know, we go through cycles, we go through up good times, we go through the bad times and it just. Yeah. yeah. No, I have. There's yeah. That. So I won't name names. I think I can tell this story without naming any names, but at one point in, this was in 2010, 2011, I was chosen to lead a, committee for a national trade association called ANGA, the America's Natural Gas Alliance, which had been created to promote natural gas during the Obama administration and its many assaults on natural gas. And we were pursuing some legislation in Austin and they chose me to lead it. And this was a association that was made up of 33 of the largest independent producers in the United States of natural gas. And 
So the CEOs were the board and, you know, each company had a person on my committee in Texas. And, and so we hired the contractors and lobbyists we were going to use and established a democratic process for approving each step of the plan we were trying to implement. And there was one company who had a vice president of government affairs who didn't like me. We had worked with one another, didn't like me personally. And we had worked with each other in Washington on several different things. And so he instructed his designee on our committee to vote against everything we did. And really, and literally every vote we took, this company voted no. And so it presented a real difficult situation for me because I had great respect for the CEO of that company and had known him for a long time and hated to be in a position where we were voting 32 to 1 on everything and the one was always his company. And so, you know, and the fellow who was on our committee was good natured about it. And I mean, it wasn't like we were having big fights. But I knew word was eventually going to get back to the CEO that this was happening. And so I just had known him for a long time. So I called him one day and just told him, you know, in general terms, what was happening and why I thought it was happening and that I just didn't want him to be surprised about it. But that was something, that call was something I kind of agonized over whether or not to make because I didn't want to undermine his guy in Austin. But at the same time, I also didn't want, you know, him to be getting calls from one or more of his peers asking what the hell was going on. So, you know, you often are presented with those kinds of challenges when you're trying to lead a project. And, you know, it's it also could apply internally with respecting the chain of command and, you know, not wanting to undermine someone you respect. And I really had a lot of respect for their guy on our committee. So anyway, it was just a, you know, you're always, when you're leading an organization or leading a project, and I led a lot of different industry-wide projects during my career, you're always going to have a challenge like that come up. There's always going to be something. There's always one jerk that's petty. Right. (laughs) And so- I will agree with that. You know, and it all developed and I hated it even more because it all just developed out of a personality conflict. And, you know, I'm not blaming the other guy for that or me for that. It just was, it was a fact, you know, it was just an unfortunate thing. And it's it's so strange to me, you know, through my career, one of the things I took the most pride in was being able to work with anyone, you know, in a cooperative way and good, you know, good faith way. But there were just three people in my whole career <laughs> that I was just never able to work with. And that guy was one of them. I mean, you know, for whatever reason, you know, we just had a conflict and it wasn't going to go away. So, yeah, no, I totally get it. It's kind of different in a woman's world. You always find that one woman that's just like completely intimidated by any woman, period. <laughs> Anyone. And then you get put on their list and they try to come after you. And I'm like, I keep all receipts, buddy. I I definitely CYA. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But like, there's always that one. Right, right. In any industry, there's always that one. Yeah. And it's it's hard when, you know, when it exists, it's kind of hard to get around. I, you know, and I, unfortunately, with those three individuals, I was just never able to get around it, find a way to resolve it. And so it just, I mean, it wasn't like it harmed me in any way, but it was uncomfortable. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It just makes your job harder. It does. Yeah. It just makes things needlessly difficult because it wasn't like we were even doing anything controversial on that committee and everything we were doing had been authorized by the board of that trade association. And so it just, it was all just really it was petty really odd. <laughs> very petty and odd and silly yeah it just it, immature it was something that the rest of us didn't really have a lot of time for either yeah 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 totally get that on the latter what is the most rewarding thing about leadership oh getting results no question about it you know when you get to the right result or the you achieve a goal you're trying to achieve and knowing that you did that in a team effort and that, you know, your leadership played a role in getting to that goal. 
to me, was the most rewarding thing about it all. And that was the most fun about it. Most of my career, I was an individual contributor and didn't, you know, would accomplish things that didn't really have a team around me. But I also did a lot of team and committee kind of work that was always rewarding at the end of the day. And the thing you learn about that, too, that I thought was so important that I think some people don't ever learn is it's really important to ensure that everyone who worked on the project gets credit, gets the appropriate credit, and that the leader not take credit for everything, right? Well, yeah, because of course you're leading, but there's a team effort involved. That's the entire reason they're there to begin with. Right. And, you know, we've all worked for bosses who wanted to take credit for everything that happened, and they end up not being effective leaders as a result because people don't want to work for them. You know, some people never learn that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard pill to swallow. It is. Yeah. So on that, if you had a piece of advice to give the audience, what would that be? (laughs) Well, of course, a lot of it depends on where you are in your career, right? One piece of advice I give to everyone who's trying to move up in an organization is if your boss has an executive assistant, be sure you have a strong relationship with his executive assistant. And I'm not talking about some kind of extracurricular relationship. I'm just talking about (laughs) be sure. Specifically not that. (laughs) Because what you learn is that your boss is spending more time with her or him, whatever it is, than with his own wife or own spouse. Right. And that's the person they're relying on more than anyone but outside their family and their life. And if you, you have a strong relationship with that person, your boss is going to be hearing good things about you, and that can only help you in your career. You know, the other thing that I'm just obsessive about, and I know it sounds trite, but it really is important at the end of the day. Some people will downplay it to you, but it really is important. Be on time. Be on time. Even if, you know, I was in an organization at Burlington Resources, if a meeting started 10 minutes after the scheduled time, that was a prompt meeting, you know, but I was always there at the time the meeting was supposed to start and meetings I chaired, meetings I led always started at that time and we weren't going to wait for people. And it really is, people do notice when you're not the one holding up a meeting, when you're one who's there on time. And then the third thing is don't waste other people's time. Yes. That may be the most important one, really. Time is money. Time is money. And people, it may not even be conscious, but everybody values their own time. And if you are seen as someone who wastes time in meetings or wastes other people's time with unnecessary work, wastes your employees' time with unnecessary work, or focuses on the wrong things, it's important to focus on the right things then you're not going to be an effective leader. Don't waste your people's time. It's, it's really important. And you'll avoid a lot of problems with relationships if you can avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't call a meeting when it could have just been an email. Exactly. And don't copy everybody on oh my gosh, in your department <laughs> when only one person needs to get the email. You know, that right. was a hard lesson when I'm so old. I remember when email first came out, right? In the early nineties, <laughs> you know, one of the hardest lessons for people to learn was when to copy everyone and when not to copy everyone. And I had an employee one time, God bless her. She was great. I mean, she was really good at her job, but she wanted to copy everybody in our whole department on every email she sent out. (laughs) And it took six months. I mean, it really took six months of repeated complaints from people above me to get her to stop doing that before she finally did. And Anyway, but she was lucky. She was a great employee. So, you know, it was just a matter of finally convincing her to stop doing it. It's training her to stop the bad habit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, it was difficult for some people to catch on to. Yeah. No, we still have that problem in this organization. (laughs) I'm not going to comment any further, but I'm like, we don't have to reply to all every single time. Just to the person that originally sent it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Here's another funny story. One time on that anger project. Okay. I was 
corresponding with a CEO from, I can't even remember which company it was now, on what we were doing. And I accidentally hit reply all. To oh no! <laughs> and sent it to every CEO on that board. You know, just an irrelevant email. <laughs> and I, of course, would leave my forget to turn my ringer off at night when I go to bed. And one night, I get this ding on my cell phone, and I look, and it's like three o'clock in the morning, and Aubrey McClendon is <laughs> has, has sent me a reply asking. Why in the world did you copy me on this? <laughs> <laughs> so I had Aubrey to, McClendon, uh, was that yeah, Chesapeake? That was Chesapeake. Aubrey was yeah. such a neat guy. And I got to interact with him a lot on that project. But that was one communication he didn't need. And he was up at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning checking emails, which I understand was a pretty normal thing for him. So <laughs> some of them just don't sleep and I know, I know. It's pretty wild. Pretty wild. Do you have a book that has influenced you in your career? Oh, yes. Two of them I would point to. One is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That should be required text for everyone in the business world. You know, a lot of the things I've already talked about are in that book. And then the other one is the first book that Daniel Jurgen wrote called The Prize. Yeah. And anyone who's interested in the oil and gas industry and wants to understand why the oil and gas industry is important and why we couldn't be living the kinds of lives we're living these days without oil and gas. Absolutely. Needs to pick up that book and read it. It's the greatest book ever written about the energy business. And although I will say the new map is pretty close. His latest I was gonna, book. Yeah. 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 I have that uh, too. Yeah. That's a terrific book too. But that was very influential because I read it when it first came out in the late 1980s. I think it was 87 or 88. And I had never taken the time before that to really go back and study the history of the industry that I'd been working in by then for seven or eight years. And it really did a lot for me in terms of, of understanding why what I was doing was important and not just to the company I worked for, but to for our society. And it's a little scary to me that we seem to have lost sight of that now in our society and these efforts to kind of destroy the domestic oil and gas industry that are happening in our government are really potentially disastrous for the country. And I hope we can get away with it before too much longer or get away yeah. from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And if I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure I got turned on by the prize because I actually saw the series on yeah. TV. Yeah. It was a great So like if you're not, yeah, a fantastic documentary. So if you're not a reader, definitely check it out. I think it's on Amazon Prime. It is. In fact, I just went and watched it a few weeks ago, actually, again. so, And it's really well done. And it's, what, what is it, eight episodes, I think? Eight hour long episodes? That sounds right. Yeah. yeah that so, sounds right. So, you know, reading the book is a real time commitment. But in eight hours, you can get the general gist of it in that video series. Well, and I'm the type that I don't really like actually watch it while it's happening. I like to listen to it like a podcast. So, I mean, you can just turn that on and drive and not yeah. watch it. Yeah, you can so. actually. Yeah, yeah. I do that a lot with books too. I have become an audiobook guy, even with books like The New Map, which have all the illustrations. You still get a lot out of it on the audiobook form. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, what would you say is your most used business tool? Business tool. Well, I mean, obviously my computer. You know, the gadgets have been very helpful, but they've also been kind of a cutting-edge, double-edged sword because they have had the effect of making our jobs a lot more complex. And That's fair. You've had a lot more on your plate because you have the technology that allows you to dress so much more than you used to be able to. When I first came into the corporate world, we didn't even have... I mean, there was no such thing as a cell phone. We didn't even have fax machines, right? Until I'd been in business for, I saw my first fax machine in 1988 or 89. I had already been in the business world for eight years. So the technology has been incredibly helpful to me. You know, I mean, that to me is because I'm in communications, the technology is, you know, everything I've done once I left accounting. Everything I've done has been communications oriented. 
I mean, all government affairs is, is communications and regulatory affairs, communications. And so when you're in that business, having these tools where you can immediately respond to questions from policymakers, from your peers on when you're working on big projects, you know, from your boss. <laughs> you know, I remember the days when I would have to, you know, check in on my voicemails at the end of each day when I was traveling. And then, you know, I'd have, you know, some days I'd have 15 or 20 of them from people I reported to and had to return all those calls. And so now this immediate communications has been so valuable to me and what I do. I don't know. Was that the nature of the question you're asking or was it about something? It's else? however you interpret it. Yeah. So. I mean, that to me, the computer and the cell phone are just invaluable to me. Yeah. I mean, I would assume that saves a ton of time for you too, because you're not having to call everybody back. Exactly. Which, by the way, that sounds awful. Right. Talking oh, to that many awful. people in it one day. Terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> I actually talked so much. This is a true story. 20 years ago, when I was only, you know, I was in my early 40s, I developed a voice issue. Couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I mean, literally, I would get to the end of the day. I talked so much. I would get to the end of the day and I was physically exhausted because it had become such a strain to speak. And so much of my job was on the phone. And so I finally went to a doctor. And he said, you know, you had, because of the way I spoke at that time, I really tensed up my neck muscles when I spoke and it put a lot of tension on actually on my vocal cords. Interesting. There were lesions on my vocal cords because of that. And it was really impacting my voice. So I had to literally go two weeks without speaking. Wow. Two weeks without speaking. And boy, you talk about a disruption in my life, both at home and at work, because I had two teenage kids at the time. You know, I had to, I had to just take vacation. And that's a whole set of trouble in itself. Right, yeah. (laughs) And then I had to do speech therapy for six months after that. And that was a difficult thing, you know, that was tough. So yeah, I mean, God, being able to type stuff instead of say everything was really beneficial for me. I guess so. That's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> I've never even heard of that. Like no, you, I, you hear about it from like people that like are singers or, right. you know. It was very yeah. similar to one of those, same kind of thing. Yeah. What's, was it Taylor? No, it wasn't Taylor Swift. One of the young female singers had an issue like that last year. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. It was Taylor Swift. Anyway. Yeah. No, I don't think it was Taylor Swift. It, it's one of them though. There's, I don't know. I'm at the age where I don't know. Who anybody is anymore? I know Taylor Swift. That's all I know because my granddaughter. (laughs) I even know another one called JoJo Siwa because my granddaughters love JoJo Siwa and went to see her in concert last year. So yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the only reason I know that. She's a YouTuber. Is she okay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's a YouTuber. Yeah. No, I know that one too because my daughter. So. But yeah, (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed to admit that. But anyway, (laughs) it's okay. You just told like a hundred thousand (laughs) people. Maybe maybe there'll be a story about that. Blackman follows JoJo Siwa. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be funny. All right, so this isn't necessarily applicable, but this gives you a chance to talk crap about at least other podcasters. Who's your most respected competitor? Oh, Robert Bryce. Well, there's a lot of them, but I mean, Robert is fantastic. He's terrific. He does great work. He's, you know, done such a great job of tracking. He's really focused a lot on, he's created a database of pushback against renewable projects by communities and in rural areas around the country. All we get in most of the, the media is, these positive narratives about renewable energy and how it doesn't, you know, everybody loves it and everybody wants it on their ranch. And, you know, the reality is, is a lot different than, than what we're being told in the media. And Robert's done a fantastic job of that. He's, he's an excellent writer, an excellent broadcaster. I was really had the opportunity to do a podcast jointly with him a couple of weeks ago. And then that was a lot of fun. He's just, 
He's really terrific. And, you know, he's the one guy I would point to that I think is, and of course, Alex Epstein. Right. Although yeah. Really, I've had him on too. He's yeah. he's great. I don't consider any, anybody a competitor. I mean, I don't feel like I'm competing with anybody for an audience or anything like that. I really enjoy all of it. And I learn a lot from so many different people. And, you know, I have gotten to where I listen to multiple podcasts every day, really, and while I'm doing my work. And so I'm kind of addicted to it now. I'm a fan. I'm a fan more than anything else. Right. Right. Yeah. That's great. I have a hard time listening to podcasts now that I've been doing it for seven years. Yeah. Well, I also don't like my own voice. So there's that. Oh my God. You have a wonderful voice. Your voice is (laughs) perfect for this. (laughs) Thank you. I wish I, I, you know, I wish I had a good voice like that. My voice is not really cut out for this, but I have fun with it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I think it's because I used to have to edit my own podcast. So <laughs> like it would exhaust me. It would take me yeah. a whole week to do one episode. Oh my gosh. Because I just, I'm like, I can't listen to this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a psychological thing. Like my voice inside my head is different than what comes out of my mouth. You know what <laughs> I mean? So, <laughs> well, you, I mean, gosh, you, you've got, honest and truly, you have one of the best broadcast voices I've heard. It's, Thank you. I appreciate that. The tone is very relaxing. It's comforting. It's, and of course, you're very articulate, so that helps too. But yeah, your voice is fantastic for this. Thank you. Thank you. It took a lot of convincing by Mark LaCour to get me to do this. Mark's another one with a great voice. See, I would yeah, love to have Mark's yeah. voice. Yeah. He's got a fantastic yeah. voice. He'll go to Starbucks and they're like, are you in radio? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe it. I totally believe that actually. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your most important lesson learned? Where leadership's concerned? Just in general, just like whether it's personal or business wise, like sure. the most important. Yeah. Well, there's two. First, be honest. Okay. Just be honest. And second is everything you do in life is about relationships whether it's in business or family or at church or wherever. It's all about relationships and being able to form them and maintain them and use, I shouldn't say use them, but employ them in a productive way. If you're in a leadership position in business, you know, there's nothing more important than having strong relationships with the people you're working with. And once you have that, once you establish that, your chances for success just multiply exponentially. And if you don't establish that, your chances of failure do the same thing. So that's the most important thing. Everything you do is about relationships and you can't really get ahead without, I mean, you can get ahead. Some people do get ahead without that ability, but I think what you're going to find out is that those folks end up being not happy people and I've always thought it's pretty important to be happy with what you're doing as well as being successful at it. So that's what I would tell people. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Loneliness is makes you miserable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We're social. Works. People are social. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how is what you're doing important to the future of the oil and gas industry? You know, I hope it's important. I think that one of the things, and Robert and I, Bryce and I were talking about this on the podcast we did together. What we're able to do, because we're not in the corporate environment now, we're able to convey messages that corporate people can't convey in a way they can't convey it. So I think what we're doing in this space that he and I and so many others are in is helping to get the truth about what's happening in energy out to the public in a way that the industries themselves can't do. I always say industry because I'm I'm so focused on oil and gas, but it's really the whole energy sector, which is multiple industries. And I think that's important. I think it's important because in our legacy media, we really don't get a lot of factual reporting going on about the truth, about what's happening in energy. That's too bad. It's a dangerous thing for our society. So I hope, I hope every day that what I'm doing is important in that respect and that, you know, people who read what I write and listen to what I have to say gain a better understanding about what's really happening 
which so often conflicts with the overarching narrative we hear in the media. Yeah, yeah. And I think that for so long, the industry didn't fight back on the misinformation the media has put out about the industries. And I feel like you and I have the same goals of education. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we're seeing now, too, more and more CEOs becoming bolder yeah. about correcting the record. I mean, Mr. Worth over at Chevron is becoming very outspoken. First person that came to mind was Chris Wright with Liberty. Oh, Chris Wright. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you've got Chris Wright and Toby Rice, Nick yeah, Julius. Yeah, Toby. Those guys are just fantastic. I mean, they're just awesome to me that they're willing to get out there and do what they do and be so outspoken and upfront about it. We haven't had enough of that. So it's been gratifying to me. Really, this year, Mike Worth has become more and more outspoken in defending his company and his industry. And I think it's really important for these CEOs at these major companies to do more of that. So I hope he's starting a trend where that's concerned. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's incredibly important. I know they have shareholders and all that stuff, but I think it's only helping by standing up for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And Vicky Holub, yeah. Holub at Oxy. Occidental. Is yeah. also really for the last two years now become increasingly. She's kicking ass. Yeah. She's fantastic. And doing a fantastic job, of course. Yeah. But I really like the fact that her messaging has become more and more pointed and. You know, she's really not shy at all about defending what she and her company are doing. Right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool where we're headed. What are your thoughts on telling someone about the industry, since we are talking about this, that doesn't quite understand the industry? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd tell them is not a dying industry. It's not an industry that's going to be gone in 10 years, like this administration seems to think it is. That regardless of the age of the person I'm talking to, uh, I try to make it clear that you're going to be using oil and gas and oil and gas products throughout the course of your entire life. You know, I think that's important. And then the other thing I like to, you know, for people who don't really know about the industry, I like to talk to people about how it has evolved in terms of protecting the environment since I've been in it. I mean, when I first, gosh, when I worked on that oil field construction crew back in the mid-1970s. Boy, it was a pretty careless industry. Made a lot of messes and was careless about safety. And that has all changed now. The culture is so different in the industry today than it was at that time. It's truly extraordinary. And very few people, you know, because I'm old, I have a perspective that most people don't have about that, right? And I've been really engaged in the industry since that my first summer on that crew was in 1976. So, so for 47 years, I've had exposure to those realities. And, you know, so I have a perspective that other people don't have. And hopefully I do a good job of conveying that to my audiences. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call you old. I'd say experienced. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel old, so that's good. That's well, that's point that's point always point. a plus. Yeah. That's definitely a plus. Yeah, it's it, it really is. Nice to get up every morning feeling good and ready to go, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm dreading Instead the day grabbing... when that ends. <laughs> <laughs> Just I'll gift you a big bottle of ibuprofen. There you go. There you go. I need that. <laughs> I need that too. I'm right there with you. <laughs> bottle of ibuprofen, a bottle of wine, and I'm good. <laughs> See, now we're going to be best friends, yes, David. Absolutely. <laughs> wine and ibuprofen yeah. sounds like a good date. <laughs> okay, so you're a podcaster. You listen to a lot of podcasts. What is your favorite podcast? Uh, <laughs> well. So, (laughs) I'm not sure I should even say this. (laughs) There's a podcast called The Unstructured Podcast, hosted by Mark Gruber and, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the other guy's name. I'm so bad with names. But it's focused on, it's called America's Untold Stories, is what it's called. And they focus a lot on conspiracy theories and the assassination. Okay, now you have my attention. Yeah, see, yeah. I'm, I'm a JFK assassination nut. Right now, that's my favorite podcast. 
Oh, right. that's cool. I'm going to have to check that out. It, it really is. They do a good job. This fellow named Gruber, he comes out of the film industry most recently, and he worked with Oliver Stone on JFK and got to know an awful lot of people involved in all that. And he does a lot of really phenomenal research into the minutia and nitpicky aspects of all that that are just fascinating. You know, I thought I knew a lot about it, but every episode I listen to, I learn things that I, I did not know and are not in any of the books written about it. So I really I've watched, I watched a lot of documentaries on it. Yeah. On yeah. the conspiracy and all that. So we'll have a conversation. Absolutely. Offline. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for coming on, David. If Thank people you. Want to reach I really out enjoyed to you, this. Yeah, if people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your DB Energy Advisors or your podcast, how can they go about doing so? Sure. You can find me, gosh, on Twitter. I would go straight to LinkedIn and Twitter. Yeah. yeah LinkedIn, you just Google my name at LinkedIn and I'll come up. Twitter is at Energy Absurdity. And then I have a sub stack, which is really the best place to get in touch with me because you'll find my email there. Substack is Blackman, B-L-A-C-K-M-O-N dot Substack dot com. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. dot com.